Travel across this stolen land with nothing but my name. These hills are soft and green now. Dry season, they will turn to gold. It's on the shoulders of these hills. I'll rest my head when I am old. As a, what I call an orthodox musician, I mean, I'm a, a very <laughs> overly serious musician, so I feel like <laughs> my travels in it are um, contain the spiritual. Um, they They have to, because I spend so much time inside the practice of of being musical. So to me, it has to express the spirit. Welcome. Listen to this next Agile Vocalist podcast. Singer and composer Maura Smiley has toured and made records with a renowned variety of artists, including indie pop stars, Toon Yards, Irish-American legends Solas, early music pioneers, theater of voices, choral composer Eric Whitaker, Americana archivist Jamie Stone's Lomax and Folklife projects, multi-Grammy-winning pianist Billy Childs, Rising Appalachia, and more, in addition to her own ensembles, Voco and Vita. Mora is regularly commissioned to write large-scale choral and chamber music works, with millions singing her music around the world. She's been featured in TED conferences on BBC Radio and TV, NPR, and live at countless venues from Lincoln Center to Royal Festival Hall. She's known for enchanting audiences, whether on stage, atop glaciers, inside ships, or in cozy kitchens from Norway to Tasmania. In 2018, her solo album, Unzip the Horizon, premiered at that year's Savannah Music Festival, and she published a companion choral songbook for it in 2019. Mara appeared recently with Toon Yards on Jimmy Kimmel Live and The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. We are in what I call the Bellow Shed, and the Bellow Shed is in Vermont, in Bristol, Vermont, um, at my house. And I'm Mora Smiley, and it's so ha- it's so wonderful to have you, Rachel, here and um, to be on to be doing this episode. Thank you. Thank you for having me into the bellow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is the this is the place where hopefully a lot of bellowing will happen. Um lots of different types of singing. Oh, great. So, uh I guess I'll I'll start with there's a song of yours, Bellow, um that you did as your NPR Music Tiny Desk concert and they take submissions. Yeah. And many artists I know <laughs> have done a submission. Yeah. And your song was submitted for that. When was it? Mm, mm-hmm. I think that was actually 2020. 2020. Okay. Yep. Interesting year. <laughs> yeah. Interesting year. There's a, there's a line in that 
where you talk about sitting at your grandmother's knee and how singing she taught I, I guess it was you, but you can... Yeah. She taught that singing was a way to connect to the other world Yeah. in this lyric. And yeah. I wanted to kind of hear your background. How did you get to that? Mm. Because I think it's autobiographical. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> so the the lyric in Bello that you're you're talking about is is that the Babas in Ukraine, where I had the great honor of going and studying song um, with Kitka, Oakland mm -hmm. superstars, that those grandmothers thought of certain songs that we were learning, that they were teaching us as powerful enough when sung at a certain time of year, in this case, Midsummer, to, yeah, speak to the ancestors, um, that they they had that ability to cut through, to lift the veil, is how we would say it. And there was a matter-of-factness about that, about, well, A, the presence of ancestors in the lives of, of the living, and the power of song to be one of the connecting uh, languages. I sat at the knees of the grandmother, her daughter told me We could lift the veil between the worlds by singing And we were sat outside in the dawn light Of the midsummer feast and the short night Singing to the dead so they'd bless the crop Bless the young, bless the year The song Bello brought together that learning, which was in 2005 and six, uh, with the touring that I did 10 years later with Tune Yards, another Oakland artist, and the way that it felt to sing with Meryl Garvis connected me back to that moment with the, with the grandmothers. And they, because Meryl sings with this, this sense of the possibility of the voice, this huge, deep well of power in a singing voice, and it you it's used to to protest, to um, to snarl, to coo, to to soothe. She she it, to sing with her is really a wonderful gift because you get to kind of feel how the voice has all these different places that it belongs. So, yeah, so singing with 10 years later when I was touring with Tune Yards, yeah, those 10 years after being in Ukraine and learning that from the grandmothers, I was singing with a singer who was so powerful and using her voice so wildly and so widely, using the voice to protest, to, to seduce, to, to soften, to soothe, to snarl, to express anger, to be confronting. So all these things that actually make the voice feel like a tool, like a ritual tool. The way that Meryl was doing that with Tune Yards was such a pleasure to be around and to me connected back to the power of traditional singing, to traditional folk polyphony, even though she was doing it all with her, new, her, her own music. And that really inspired me 
and brought out a voice in me, a composing voice in me that I always felt was there. Bellow is one of the, I think, the, the successful songs that came mm-hmm. out of trying to use the voice in that way to, uh-huh. to lift the veil and to talk about how the voice can exist in all these different contexts in our lives, not just in a concert, on a mic, et cetera. Right, right. Beautiful. Do you want to talk a little bit about spirit and song? Mm. Just because it's a connective tissue to what you're saying. Yeah, the process of accepting the bigger role for a voice has been a coming home for me. And I think of my voice as almost a protective uh, skin for me, for my spirit. The voice has been a very constant companion and a way for me to connect into a world that I don't always feel I understand or is welcoming. Mm -hmm. And so I think this cosmology that the Ukrainian Babas were talking about, that song is important in giving you a sense of your place in the world and the pl- and place in the cycles of time, that really made sense to me. Mm-hmm. And I grew up not in any religious tradition at all. I sang a lot of sacred music, mm-hmm. so that was part of my language very early on. Mm-hmm. But never at home was there a practice of, of religion or or spiritual belief Mm. and so as a what i call an orthodox musician i mean i'm a a very (laughs) overly serious musician so i feel like (laughs) my travels in it contain the spiritual they have to because i spend so much time inside the practice of being musical so Mm. to me it has to express the spirit and i do want to say also that i think singing is unique in that we all have, we walk around with this instrument in our bodies. And so it's very connecting. Uh, It's very real that we have this ability to connect with other people through this instrument that we have, that we carry. That in itself feels spiritual because it, it gives me and the people I sing with a kind of sense of belonging with one another. She's gone, her spirit lingers on And is with me as I travel
lot of stories I've heard, of personal stories of how did you get into music, it's always a, it's either the family that nurtures that or it's the community. It's rarely, I just started doing this on my own. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's rarely, true. it's it's a, it's a group upbringing yeah. in, in sound that, that makes the singer. Yeah, it's and, so and true. And if you don't have that, it doesn't mean you can't sing, Mm-mm. for one. Right. It just means you didn't have that aspect of community connected to sound. Yeah, that's so beautifully put. Yeah, and that, and I think when I am out there in the world and teaching, mm-hmm. I really want to bring this idea to less confident singers or maybe singers that are coming to it later in their lives to remind us all of the many, many contexts where singing belongs and uh-huh. and where it has belonged in the past. You know, singing has imitated non-human things. Singing has mm-hmm. been part of meditation and trance. Uh-huh. Singing is a way of expressing mystery, a way of learning language and even the norms in our culture, a way of grieving and yeah. and to express melancholy, but also to praise and pay homage and to pray. It's used to accompany dance. It's used in the outdoors. The voice is used in the outdoors differently than when indoors. Mm-hmm. Uh, often bonds people together or, or literally calls someone from a far distance. Mm-hmm. Telling stories, of course, mm-hmm. healing and, and rituals character embodying characters expressing the monstrous parts of being human confrontation uh, protest anger also of course conversation singing is is has historically been a huge part of conversations between parties that don't agree of course it's a seduction too or talking about love so Uh i just love to remind myself and others about all these places where singing belongs yeah Mm -hmm. yeah that bring that's quite a list it brings up a lot yeah Uh. (laughs) and also that you don't just sing in those contexts that make that each one of them will make you sing a different way Mm -hmm. and so that's when we talk about the timbres of voice and and what you know how how you're going to sing when you're when you're singing in protest is going to be completely of course completely different than yeah. when you're singing a love song or or a seduction song and and so that's that's a pretty obvious example but would you give us a demo mm-hmm. give us a, a what's timbre what is give us a, a right. timbre demo so Just we could bit. we could sing something like down in the valley Right, and we can kind of make it soft and inviting like that. Mm-hmm. Down in the valley, or if we had this sort of sense of being out on a, a mountain and and singing out into the open, we might be more like down in the valley. You know, something big and nice. We would use a different aspect of. Would there be more high partials in that sound? Um, if you're expressing anger, you know, down in the valley, you know, you would kind of pull, maybe do different things if you're expressing anger. 
And this becomes, I guess, in some ways you can think of this as, as theatrical. But think about if you are at the bedside of somebody who is dying, you're going to sing really differently than if you're out on a, a mountain or if you're uh, in a pro in, in a, on the street protesting something. So, right. you know, if you're saying, um, not gonna, we, we're not gonna die on this hill, you know, not gonna die on right here or, uh, you know, something like that. We, we could sing in defiance, but at the bedside or as, of a small child, we would not gonna die right here. So these contexts call upon us to use our voices in all different ways. And I think it's so good to remember that. I have been a little bit of a Maura Smiley, Maura Smiley junkie since the <laughs> mid-2000s. And I think that's, you know, there's certain albums that I've listened to a lot and that I can sing. And for me, the themes of traveling and home and belonging and, you know, arrival and sort of that tied into freedom and, you know, some of the humanitarian songs, the things that you did with, with Refugee. And of course, current trends are the themes that stand out the most for me. Yeah. But do they stand out for you? I mean, how does that, how do you perceive that? Do you perceive those as, as themes that you work with a lot or? Yeah, or no? I do. I very much do okay. it. And I think the idea of the voice as the companion is a part of that too, that I have a show called The Voice as a Traveler, and that is really about that idea that when we're forced to travel or when we're in exile, mm -hmm. sometimes all we have with us is our voice. Mm -hmm. And the voice can be a literal thing like this thing that we speak with or this this thing that we make sound with and sing with. But it's also that voice, your story, your set of memories, you know, the way that you create things, I also call your voice. So I think exactly those themes of longing and belonging, I, I, exile and belonging. I have a lot of this nomadic spirit in myself. Uh -huh. Yeah. And I'm aware of maybe as a touring musician, as a person who decided not to have children, mm -hmm. as a person that is empathic, maybe to a fault, uh, who came up in a in a family where I was scared a lot. I think I really relate to those that feel like they're on the outside. So I think a lot of my songs try to speak to those people and create a sense of empathy and a, and a sense of inclusion. Mm. So that, I think, is in those albums like Blink, mm -hmm. Laughter Out of Tears. And there's also this real melancholy part of my, my, my personality that's coupled with a real need to connect. Uh -huh. And I found over the pandemic, for instance, that I feel I got dumber because I didn't interact with people. Oh. And I feel like my intelligence is actually quite connected to interacting like we are right now in a room together. <laughs> like I lost language. I feel like I lost a lot of words. So I, 
I think it's good for me to stay connected with other human beings in a physical context. Mm-hmm. I think that's just generally good for people. Yeah. And then the other thing about Voice as a Traveler, the, the model of the show, as I understood it, is you travel to a location and then you work with local musicians there, which to me mm-hmm. is not a band touring kind of model. Right. It is really, it's almost like localizing the performance. Yeah, it's true. To, because you're undoubtedly doing some sort of additional improv that yes adapting adapting from that musician as they join the show for that location yeah you want to say a little bit about that oh that's really i'm glad you brought that up yeah because it that is exactly what's happening and i was speaking with my partner seamus about that loving that i do that but also wondering is there something that i could learn from not adapting because i've constantly Mm -hmm. been adapting but I guess the to answer your question, yes, I come in because I write music for groups of people. And I also, in more lately, have been writing music for myself to sort of lead and sing, well, lead with my voice. Yeah, I'm often coming in just myself and working with a group of musicians in that city, often singing, singer mm-hmm. uh, musicians, but including instrumentalists. And I'm often working in an academic context. So there's been, you know, a day or two where we've been working together in that educational way. And, and yeah, and I'm born to collaborate. And I think, again, that idea of feeling like more myself when I do get a regular chance to interact Mm -hmm. and maybe adapt to other human beings yeah, that's something that almost an unconscious goal that I set for myself and carried out through the voices of Traveler. Here we live in a world that's very married to the virtual, right? Mm-hmm. And inexplicably, I mean, in- inextricably tied. Our physical bodies are tied now to this virtual existence as well, to greater or lesser degrees. Mm-hmm. And I am fascinated by that and have written lots of stuff with phones kind of mixed into a concert experience. But I think I'm wanting to create art that gets us thinking critically about who we are and how we relate to the virtual world, partially because I see really scary things happening Mm -hmm. in our political landscape and social landscape because of isolation. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like music and the act of singing, going back to your first, one of your first ways of putting this, uh, part of the job is to bring people together and give them that sense of belonging together. And I know that sounds really kumbaya, but like, I I don't think it's kumbaya. It, it, it probably includes some really uncomfortable interactions as well, but um, I want my art to be there to bring groups of folks together. And that's also stepping into a void where, over time, society, I think, too, is backing away from religious mm-hmm. means of, of doing that together. Yeah, and so we don't, we haven't necessarily replaced it. That's so true. It's so <laughs> so perfectly said. Yeah. And I re- I wrote a, a liturgy this last year for uh, a group of singers. Actually, spent be- the better part of 
eight months on it. And it was trying to do that, trying to find a new way of seeing what we can agree is sacred. You know, what, what can we agree is sacred and that we can sing together? It's, um, it's, it's a, it's an, a, a pursuit filled with pitfalls and cliches, I have to say. But I still think it's worth, <laughs> worth doing, you know, finding our new ways of gathering. And humor is going to be a big part of it, too, right? right. I mean, humor, <laughs> yeah, which is not particularly great for me. I'm, I'm pretty earnest, but I'm trying. I actually want to have the next thing that I write, you know, include that, the snarl and the, and the giggle of humor. So I'm singing this old original song that I wrote as a love song to California. Just for you, Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) And for Dave. I live in California From the green mountains I came I I travel across this stolen land with nothing but my name. These hills are soft and green now. Dry season they will turn to gold. It's on the shoulders of these hills I'll rest my head when I am old I first heard you and Voco in the 2007 Harmony Sweepstakes. You were the national champions in 2007. (laughs) I found a photo of you and you had this cute short hair. Yeah, a little pixie cut. (laughs) Yeah. Um... That's where we. That's where my husband and I first first met your work. I remember meeting you. I think after the after the show there in um, Marin County. I think. I think you came, or maybe it was, it was a later it was at the Kate Wolf Festival. Oh, maybe it? it was at Kate yes. Wolf. Yeah. yeah, which was maybe the next year or something like that. Yeah, it could have been that same summer. Yeah, it could have been. Um. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Two thousand seven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, so that's a long time. That's sixteen years, and <laughs> it just—it's sort of where I started to get to to know your work. Um, yeah. Do oh, you do so you cool. ha- do you look back on on those years? Are there, you know, sort of anchor points that stand out for you? Um, yeah. You they, know, when you start to follow an artist, I think it it stands out for me, right? It it yeah it, that, that artist comes into your collection and maybe you don't yeah. listen every day but it's on the playlists or yeah. it's in the cd rack or, or however yeah that's um, so fascinating to me as the artist yeah. <laughs> to to know that that happens and to yeah. to know that there are moments where that music is meaningful to somebody mm-hmm. in their story yeah um that time was was a good time and there was a momentum in starting to become more physical with with singing 
and and adding in body percussion, yeah. much thanks to Evie Layden, who was in contact with her husband Keith Terry. I think they were that was right around when they got married and started working together. And Evie was doing these really innovative sequences of body percussion with these vocal camps that I was running and she was running as well. And so that was getting carried into my band who is Mm -hmm. called Voco and was based out of LA. And so, yeah, there was a feeling of getting more comfortable with my own body as a singer, which I had always wanted to, to have happen, Mm -hmm. but I came up through (laughs) sacred music and early music right. and like some pretty disembodied, <laughs> disembodied <yes. laughs> stuff, pretty brainy, you know? So I think it was, a, I think 2007 was great for that sense of a, a new world opening up where you could do percussive movement without being a dancer, which I'm not, and, and singing at the same time and, and getting other folks to do that. So definitely a good sort of seed planting time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and body percussion is, it can be so inclusive because people watch that and they either are like, wow, I could never do that, or they're turned on and they don't, they want to learn how. Exactly. Right? So you, you worked with different, you've worked with different groups that, lots of different yeah, groups to, to teach. Yeah. You want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I believe that. At that time, that was one of the first, I think probably in 2005 was where I started putting together the great Lead Belly and Sweet Honey in the Rock song. Well, Sweet Honey in the Rock and Lead Belly made this song, Bring Me Little Water Sylvie, famous. It was covered by lots of different artists, but my the version that I grew up with was Sweet Honey in the Rock. And... I experimented with putting body percussion with that song because I was learning body percussion from Evie Layden, uh, another Oakland, all these great Oakland people. (laughs) Or Berkeley, one of the two. Yeah, she's in Oakland, yeah. She's in Oakland, okay. All these important to me people in Oakland, actually. (laughs) Thank you, Oakland. Um, And so, yeah, there was, and Sylvie then became a phenomenon around the world, partially because at that time, Voco was traveling a lot. Okay. And we were just teaching it wherever we went. Uh So we would do a concert and we would do a workshop and Uh it started spreading that way. And then I think my friend Malcolm Dalglish, who is a a composer and sold his own music, hipped me to the idea that I could actually publish this arrangement and, and not have to be there to teach it. So... People could get it through sheet music, which really changed everything. And that became an important part of how I survive as a musician um, is selling these this sheet music, both arrangements and and compositions. Nice. And How Can I Cry was an early Mm. example of that, too, of body percussion. And that's a song I wrote when I was 20, I think, and found myself performing it with with the groups that I with that I had first Vida and then Voco and made a sheet music arrangement of it mm-hmm. and found that people wanted to do it because it had a simple body percussion with it that kind of gave it a, a, a sense of groove 
and accessibility. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, How Can I Cry was one of those first places where the idea of moving in an accessible way came together with the harmony, you know, that acapella thing. not just one newspaper anymore there's not five radio stations there's not it's yeah thousands of ways to find an audience and any kind of artist where do you find you know where do you put your creative energy energy expression yeah anything where do you you know where do you connect with people where you know it will build more of reaching the right yeah. person who's ready to be enlightened and brought into community yeah. through sound, through Oof. what, you know, ha- it's it's like a, that's a tug of war. It really know, is. For every artist, yeah. I think now. Well, and you're right that the act of 
or I should say the the market place mm-hmm. of artistry. Yeah. It actually encourages tribalism, you know, and and that that you only connect with the people that say that they like you and algorithmically connect and return to you, mm-hmm. right? So there's a great deal of temptation to just play it safe to be an echo chamber to be part of an echo chamber yeah it's it's a big it's uh it was part of a reckoning that i had in 2020 Mm. about the echo chamber that i was in as a white person as uh, a person with my particular privileges and it was realizing that my life and the way that I was living and and having my unfolding a career was not often reaching out of an echo chamber. So Mm -hmm. I was flummoxed by Mm -hmm. that. (laughs) I love that word. I was flummoxed about how do you actually reach out and across to people that don't see you, agree with you, you know, that there's not the automatic tribal, uh-huh, yep, I'm with you. Mm-hmm. So that's been part of what I'm grappling with in the last couple of years, successfully and un- unsuccessfully. So I love that you bring that up because it is the need to make a living and the, and that wonderful feeling of belonging actually yeah. is at loggerheads with also yeah. what art should do, which is confront and make uncomfortable uh, and connect with people that you wouldn't normally connect with. So it's, it is, it's, it needs to be uncomfortable, I guess. And that a good amount of the time for you as the artist and even for your audience. And I think that, Mm. yeah, that's not always possible. I don't feel like that's always what I'm needing to do, but it needs to be part of what I do. And collaboration can really bring me to do that because if I choose to do a collaboration with uh, Natronics, you know, he's going to bring elements in that I never would have thought of, right? Mm -hmm. And then my audience gets confronted with his choices, you know? And I think that's important for me and for my audience, you know? So... I want to try to bring in collaboration that that augments and magnifies beautiful, mm-hmm. the beautiful and accessible. But also, I want to collaborate with people who who confront me and my audience. And so, in my curiosity about Natronics, when I when I sent you the notes on this, um, I think the song he, he mm-hmm. remixed "Sing About It," and he did it with um, kind of a hip hop rap kind mm-hmm. of feel. Yeah. Did did you find him or he found you or Yeah, we are How did you We made the first move. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great question. We we ended up touring together because oh. he's the bass player for Tune Yards and and they are life partners and musical partners. Am I 
when they released a new record, they called me out to California to do some work with them. And in that time, I really got to to hang with Nate a lot. This, mm-hmm. His name is Nate Brenner. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and we decided at that time to to do that. And And really the way the collaboration went was that he did something with that track, um, you know, and I asked, you know, I asked him if he would do that. Um, and so that was less of us being in a room together making the music. Oh, I gotcha. But we were in the room together just getting, you know, have, having fun with each other. And oh. and you could, I could feel, and I think he could feel like, yeah, whatever you do, I'm going to dig it, you know. And I trust you, which is a big part of what collaboration is. You refer to yourself, and and it's very apparent to me that you're very serious about your art. So Hmm. what does it look like and what does it feel like when you're hanging around with the tune yards, getting Mm. to know each other, having fun? What what does that look like? Mm. Are you watching movies? I mean, a lot, you know, I always think a lot about... It's a great question. Do musicians, like put away the instrument or their mm-hmm. voice or what, their body and, you know, go tune out on them. Like, what do they do to recreate, mm-hmm. right? Because we come to them mm-hmm. to, recreate, to recreate. And where do you go? Yeah. You need to recreate. <laughs> Such a good question. I mean, I think... What do you do? I, the, it's really a great question because the, having traveled in a few different genres of music, you, mm-hmm. you realize that different musicians who are called to certain types of music often are also called to certain types of fun and right. <laughs> you know for some musicians it's like going out for a drink you right know? yeah and there's some obvious yeah. things that come up in the mind. right um yeah. or you know or taking drugs or um or partying or or <laughs> cooking together right. um that's a big one or definitely taking you know while being outdoors and mm. taking walks together that's a big part of being a traveler and discovering your your world around you that you're arriving into every day um a new city mm. in that very interesting time of hanging with Merrill and Nate in their house we were in that strange time of trying to be very careful and masked around oh. each other oh, yeah. and so there was a certain sort of funniness about it and and a real care and a tenderness you know mm-hmm. like i'm like looking at each other through masks and saying i'm really here i am i promise <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but yeah it's just sitting on the couch and talking and and uh, like nate has a really funny sense of humor and talking about astrology you know or <laughs> the things that surprise you and, and just being you know oh you're into that I, you know right. I would never have thought <laughs> right and right. then you you know or going and getting your hair cut outside you know we we got our hair cut in at in, in somebody's lawn because oh. you know it was that time that, of year, time, that time yeah right covid <laughs> so yeah it was just sort of funny things that you bond about I would say a lot of musicians spend a lot of time just sitting places and talking, and it's not necessarily that deep either, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. What is the life of the arranger? You just, you you imagine this, yeah. this incredibly busy mind and this very physically lonely existence, yeah. and I don't 
know that that's correct, but I... It is correct, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's oh, so tragic. Okay. No, and, but... You know, and folded on that is commissioned works. Yeah. Like if you're being commissioned to arrange, you know, do an arranged work. Yeah. Like what is What is that life like? I found it much easier to do arranging when I was in the act of also performing and being around other people because I'm fine to arrange in a room by myself. I can make decent music that way. But it, you know, soon after I need to have more contact with people. So this is funny for me to imagine. I would not have said this before the pandemic, but I would say that my best arrangements come from me being with other people and sort of hearing them and seeing how they move and then maybe taking it away because I'm in groups, I tend to be sort of quite affected by other people. So it's nice for me to come to a place like the Bellow Shed and then process mm-hmm. the information from other bodies and voices. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Process little things you heard or yeah. remember or things yeah. you... Yeah, things that I might, in the moment when trying to be communicative and accessible to another human being, I might make something a certain way, but if I'm by myself and I get to stew, Mm. then I might make something a little more interesting or a little bit more challenging. And so I think those moments of aloneness are really key. Mm -hmm. But I would say that also my challenge is to keep my relationship to my body uh-huh. in that the act of arranging yeah so rolling around on the floor and being you know well, improvising with my voice and that kind of uh-huh. more uh playful way of of arranging is kind of better than sitting at my computer which i often do and <laughs> fiddling with the notes on right. on Sibelius uh-huh um, which is a composing program. Yeah, so, yeah. And I do a lot of that too. Mm-hmm. And I'd say what's happening now is that I'm running a choir here, my first ever choir of my own. Oh, okay. Uh, since I was in my early 20s. I mean, and certainly the biggest choir I've ever run. So it's uh-huh. 90 people all, all told. That's huge. It's kind of huge. And I've asked guest artists to come and bring their songs, right. which I arrange right. for... Um, 90 people. For 90 people. And <laughs> Is that four parts? or Yeah, three or four three parts. Four. Okay, okay. And so that process of soaking in that musician's mm. way mm. and then trying to honor it with something that then can be conveyed to any level of singer uh, is really, it's a challenge and a good challenge. So I feel like I'm reaching back to that time when I was first getting my legs, you know, with arranging and saying, yeah, this is it. This is the arrangement. And then, you know, because I think for such a long time, and I still think this way, I think let's do it differently next time. Mm. I'm I'm sort of annoyingly never going to do something the same way twice. Ah. So making it fixed is actually kind of hard for me. Our time is near. 
to try Though we are low Thrown to the ground That was inspiring! Agile Vocalist is created and produced by Rachel Medanik. Editing by Ben Kruger. Branding and design by Sasha Brandt.